Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government for this uh, online event. On the 31st of December uh, at 11 p.m., free movement between the UK, the EU and the European Economic Area countries ended and a new arm's length body was established. Uh, that was the Independent Monetary Authority for the Citizens' Rights Agreement. A bit of a mouthful. It was established last year under the EU withdrawal legislation in January 2020. But I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the IMA isn't yet a body whose organisation uh, or indeed awareness of which trips off everybody's tongues. But it is an important organisation, not least for the five million plus, we think, uh, EU and EEA citizens and their families who made the UK their home during the UK's long membership of the European Union. And I think it's fair to say that actually this week, uh, as election perda ends, the IMA is starting to flex its muscles. So it's an absolute delight for me to be joined today by four of the key players at the Independent Monitoring Authority who are going to tell us what they're up to, uh, what they're going to be looking at in the future, how they work, and critically, we hope to answer any questions you have. So do post questions away uh, in the uh, Q&A function. So I am joined with by the chair of the Independent Monitoring Authority, Sir Ashley Fox, former MEP, has been in place since uh, in shadow form and then since the organisation was launched, uh, was went through the normal pre-appointment hearing back at the back end of 2020. The now confirmed chief executive, though she has been playing that role on an interim basis, actually ever since uh, we started talking about the IMA, Kate Chamberlain, Director of Operation Delivery, Pam Everett, and General Counsel here to answer your sort of legal queries, Rhys Davis. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by everybody. Uh, I'm Jill Rusher, I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, been working on Brexit and very, very interested as well in how arm's length bodies work. So it's really interesting to have those two interests coincide. Um, gonna get, uh, get to the uh, team as quickly as possible. Do post your questions. And please tweet along as well at hashtag IFG Brexit because we want people to really start to become aware of the IMA and critically how it can help them if they're worried that their rights under the withdrawal agreement are not being adequately guaranteed. So I'm going to kick off by asking Sir Ashley, just could you do a sort of intro for us to the Independent Monitoring Authority? What is it? How big is it? And, and what, it, what are you there to do? Well, hello, Jill, and thank you for your kind introduction. As you said, the IMA is an independent body set up under the UK-EU withdrawal agreement. And our job is to ensure that the rights of EU citizens, as set out in part two of that agreement, are upheld. And we do that, I think, in three ways. We monitor public bodies and how they're behaving. We receive complaints from citizens who tell us if their rights are not being upheld. And we also proactively engage with citizens and stakeholders, for example, by our survey. And we've re released the results of that 
this week to ensure that those rights are being upheld. Um, we want to ensure, and our role is, that EU citizens have the confidence to continue to live, to work, to study, to raise families in the United Kingdom and Gibraltar, just as they always have done. Uh, and as you know, I served as an MEP in Brussels for 10 years. I have a personal commitment to ensuring that the EU and the UK have the best possible relations. Um, and part of that is ensuring that the rights of citizens, EU citizens in the UK and British citizens in the EU are fully respected. And so we intend to ensure that happens. And if I can just conclude, it's really important that any EU citizens that have not yet registered for settled status do so as quickly as possible. They've got until the 30th of June. So I would encourage people to get that message out. Okay. Register for settled status before the 30th of June, please. And we did see the Home Office yesterday uh, tweeting that it was 50 days to go as I think they launched yet another advertising campaign about this. I just wonder if you give us some feel, uh, Ashley, for how big is the organisation and where is it based? I mean, your remit covers the whole UK, doesn't it? You're not a sort of just looking at the government in Westminster. So, so who are you looking at and, you know, have you got the resources that you need? So uh, we've got just over 50 members of staff. Uh, we're based in Swansea but I don't think we've all been in the same building at the same time. Uh, we cover not just the whole of the United Kingdom, but also Gibraltar. So clearly um, the United Kingdom government uh, will be one of those bodies that we monitor, but we'll also monitor the devolved administrations. Um, we'll monitor the government of Gibraltar. In fact, we'll monitor those public sector bodies that are responsible for the rights as set out in the part two of the withdrawal agreement. So we will monitor them and we will proactively go out and check with citizens and stakeholders that those rights are being upheld. Now you're talking quite a lot about stakeholders and it's clearly very important that people know you exist, but you only came to existence if you like, you didn't have much lead time before you were potentially needed. So how are you going about raising your profile with the organisation? So I know that if I need you to do something for me, you're there to help me. Uh, well, so that's a process by which we will become better known. Uh, we start by going to the embassies of all the different EU countries so that if they encounter a particular problem or their citizens come to them with a problem, they know where we are. Uh, we've got in touch with big stakeholder groups like Three Million and Settled, made ourselves known to them and asked them to provide us with intelligence when they come across it. Citizens Advice Bureau is another source of intelligence for us, but also the CAB can provide information to EU citizens that come to them asking for help. Uh, we've started on social media, um, just slowly raising our profile, and this will take time, we acknowledge that, but I think in time we will become better known by EU citizens who will see us as a guardian of their rights. And what about your uh, your political colleagues or former colleagues? Are you on MP MPs radar screen yet as an organisation to go to? Well, we've certainly written to every member of parliament in Westminster, uh, also members of the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly, even the Parliament in Gibraltar. We've written to them all. 
we've written to chief executives of local authorities. Uh, but I acknowledge we're not a household name at the moment. I think this is something that will build organically, but certainly those who we are monitoring know that we exist. And the fact that we've intervened in our first legal case, I think, uh, demonstrates to public bodies around the United Kingdom and Gibraltar that we have powers and we're prepared to use them where necessary. That's interesting. I'm going to I'm going to come to Rhys as the lawyer when we get on to on to legal cases. Um, Kate, uh, we're just six weeks away, just under six weeks away from the end of the grace period, which obviously is the first sort of critical deadline. Um, I wondered how you thought the EUSS was going. Uh, we've had loads of people register. Does that mean it's not really a problem? I was going to say it's difficult to say that it's not going well when you see how many people have registered. And I think it's probably fair to say that very many of those who have registered have found the process relatively straightforward. But of course, it's those that don't find it straightforward that it's most important for us as an organisation to be looking at. And certainly we have had a number of complaints reported to us of people who found the process of applying for a settled status to be difficult and challenging for them. And you may actually have seen that we um, did put something out publicly on Monday, simply again, part of the fact that it's 50 days before the end of the deadline. We are keen to make sure we're doing as much as we can, as Ashley did, to encourage people to apply before the deadline. But we also acknowledge, if, if I just look at some of the issues that have been highlighted with us, um, difficulties with the application process, whether it be digital or occasionally paper, um, some of the length of time that it can be taking to process some of those applications. And of course, it's important to recognise the um, level of, of tension that um, people will be experiencing and uncertainty during that process. Um, some of the challenges about um, correcting details after applications, con contacting organisations to actually directly ra raise complaints. And one of the things we are very much encouraging people to do is that if you have a problem with a public body, you should complain directly to them. And we would expect public, bod public bodies to be responding well in that particular context. So I, I think it would be wrong to say that the process is going badly when you look at how many people have managed to get through it successfully. But nonetheless, it is really important that we become alert to where things may be going wrong, that we as an organisation, because we are concerned with systemic issues and general issues, make sure that we keep on top of any patterns that might be emerging of issues that we might be able to resolve with the Home Office quite um, promptly. And we are meeting regularly with the Home Office to make sure that they are aware of the issues that are being raised with us and that we are able to work through with them what might be possible in order to make sure that those issues can be resolved promptly. So, uh, so Ashley mentioned the need for everybody to get an application in by the 30th of June and clearly that's very important for anyone who might be eligible. But there's been some concern, I think, about backlogs um, that maybe the Home Office, partly because of COVID or whatever, partly if there's, I suppose, a big rush of people who suddenly realise that they have to do this, that the Home Office may not process all of those in time. Are you, is that okay? What happens to people who have made a legitimate application by the deadline, but haven't actually got confirmation of their status? They lose their rights until the Home Office gets round to it, or what happens to them? Uh, no, they, they don't lose their rights. If you've submitted a legitimate application before the 30th of June, then whilst that um, application is pending, 
then you can still enjoy the rights that you would expect up until the point at which there is a final determination on that case. Okay, and that includes if I appeal that I'm still okay as long as I'm in the system until the system really says no, this is the last no, I'm I'm okay to stay here. As long as you're in the system, you will be continuing to enjoy those rights until your case is resolved. And now I think Martin Sandbury from the FT has just called me out on being slightly sloppy because I talk about EU citizens' rights, but it's not just the EU, is it? It's the citizens' rights agreements, plural. So who is in scope? Okay, it's the, um, the EU citizens, as you would expect, um, EEA, EFTA citizens are also part of that. So yes, it is broader than simply the EU. Right. In so fact, it is anybody covered by those rights as set out in the withdrawal agreement. Okay, because I think there have been some issues, haven't there, in terms of problems with settled status. Some of the people who have the highest turndown rate, so obviously it's not clear that this is wrong, are the people who are sort of non-EU nationals who are looking to get their rights through an EU national. It's, you know, they seem to have higher turndown rates than lots of other people. Is there a systemic problem there, Kate? It's not something that we've been looking into at this stage. It's certainly not something that um, has been one of the main focuses of our discussions with the Home Office. We are keen to get behind some of the statistics on what is actually happening within the settlement scheme. And we're, we're waiting with interest actually to the next set of quarterly statistics that of course due out at the end of this month and will form the basis for some quite detailed discussions as we take this forward. There are I think going to be particular groups of citizens throughout this that might experience maybe more difficulty than others. I mean, we talk a lot about the the um, groups of older people, groups who've looked after children, groups that are maybe not as digitally enabled as others, given that it is very much a digital process. And we're certainly very alert to where there may be groups that are coming through that need particular attention. And we'll be talking to the Home Office about the support they're giving and the support they are enabling through others to, to ensure that those issues are addressed. And Kate, just one final question that's just come in from Marta. Um, we know that before uh, the settled status scheme sort of, you know, took impact and stuff like that, one of the things the EU citizens were very concerned about uh, was the lack of physical documentation, that the, it was a digital only thing, the Home Office has defended that to the limits where the world's going, uh, physical proof can be counterfeited or whatever. Is that emerging as a real problem? And are you in discussions with the Home Office about that? Because that has been a very real concern of a lot of people. We certainly know that it's been a very real concern. I don't think it's possible at the moment, certainly for us to be able to point to where it is creating um, a significant number of very real, real problems, but we are alert to that. I think the, for, certainly for me personally, the issue is not so much about whether it is a digital only status or not, it's about making sure that we clearly understand and we are able to track where that may be causing difficulties for individuals. And it's um, there may be different ways of overcoming those difficulties, but nonetheless, they need to be carefully looked at when they arise. Okay, good. So do send in problems to the IMA, make sure it's on the radar. We would certainly encourage people to contact us. I mean, the, the more information that we have, real examples of difficulties on the ground, then obviously the, the um, greater strengths we have to the arguments and the challenges that we can put forward to others. Excellent. Let's move on. Pam, Pam, this week um, you released the results of a survey you've done, your first survey of EU citizens. I think you spoke to about 3,000 people answered your online survey. What 
what were the big messages out of that? Okay, thank you, Jill. Yes, this um, we we launched the results of our survey yesterday. We spoke, as you say, to around three thousand people from both the EU and the EAF to countries. It's the first survey of its kind to be undertaken um, with EU citizens post Brexit, and um, our our main key finding, I suppose, was that. Um, there's, we identified a lack of trust in UK um, public bodies by EU citizens resident in the UK. Um, just giving you some, some highlights in terms of our findings. Um, one in four uh, of our respondents did not feel they were treated equally to UK citizens. One in two were not fully aware of their, their rights. And one in ten are considering leaving the UK after the 30th of June. Overall, 30% of respondents are not confident that their rights will be upheld by public bodies after, after the end of June. Our main conclusion, as I say, is that we, we the, the lack of trust. So we recognise the need for public bodies to build trust amongst EU citizens. And of course, that applies to us just as much as it does to other EU citizens. So we have a key role for, in building trust and ensuring that citizens feel able to come to us where they, where they do have problems, where they do have issues, that they can come to us in confidence and know that we will um, hold their information secure, for example, but follow our processes to, to pick up the issues where, 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 where we hear about them to um, take forward and identify where there might be systemic issues. Right, and what do you have any suggestions for how those bodies could go about building building public trust? Quite an interesting question from somebody uh, in the uh, in the Q and A who's asked whether you have any senior EU citizens in the Independent Monitoring Authority or maybe on your board or anywhere like that. So, so to my knowledge, um, yes, we do have a small number of EU citizens employed at the IMA. I, I think the senior um, positions, we are all British to my knowledge, um, but we are actually um, currently looking to recruit a citizens panel um, and this we hope to be around 60, between 60 and 90 EU citizens who will join a panel if you like to be a critical friend to the IMA to make sure that that, that EU voice, which is, which is not um, that strong amongst the, the British people maybe that are in the IMA, that we are fully aware and that they bring a, a, a kind of breadth of um, experience that some of us may not have given that we, we are not in the position that some of these individuals might, might find themselves. And if any of the people watching want to, want to apply, can you just give us a brief uh, hint, Pam, of how they do that? So it's on our website. So please look up the IMA website. And yes, please, we we, we have um, some interest already, which is absolutely fantastic. But yes, please, if you're interested, look at our website and please do apply. We we are very interested to hear from anybody who, who would like to work with us in that way. Right. Actually, if I just come back to you, I mean, this is, seems to be a bit of a sort of political issue, the lack of trust that EU citizens have. I mean, it's obviously Brexit's been quite a bruising process. Um, do you have any sort of messages to your political colleagues or your fellow chairs of um, public bodies about how they might go about building that trust? Well, I don't think that the survey findings are particularly surprising. Clearly, 
almost all EU citizens were opposed to Brexit. Uh, they haven't enjoyed the process um, and they're a little bit bruised by it. So let's not be surprised by that. Uh, we have the withdrawal agreement entered into in good faith by both the UK and the EU and EU citizens rights are protected as set out in part two. So it's my expectation that public bodies in the United Kingdom will want to ensure that those are upheld and and we're there as an impartial arbiter to ensure that they are. And I think actually that what will happen is that we will see trust sort of being restored in time as EU citizens see that those rights are being applied fairly. Uh, and it's my expectation that they will be. I'm not expecting any public body in the UK or Gibraltar to set out to maliciously deny EU citizens their rights. I think it's more likely to come about as a cock up or unintended consequences or so of something else. And that is why it's important that we receive intelligence. It's why it's important we receive reports of complaints that are made so that we can see if there is a systemic problem. Um, and I hope that in time, EU citizens will see that their rights are upheld and those levels of interest will increase. But it's not something that's going to happen overnight because I fully accept that for many of them, Brexit was a bruising process. And is your experience that the government departments and public bodies you're dealing with are quite responsive when you raise issues with them? I think you've You've raised an issue, haven't you, recently about the eligibility of Europe or the problems some EU citizens were facing in getting access to UK EHIC successor cards, these global health insurance cards we can now apply to under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Was that was uh, that was an issue with the Department of Health and Social Care? Clearly, has other things on its mind as well at the moment. But were they quite responsive when you intervened there? I think broadly, yes. I think Kate is probably the person best able to answer that question because uh, I don't sort of do day to day yeah. issues. But I think the short answer is we raised an issue and and they responded as we would hope. But perhaps I could ask Kate to come Kate. in and give more details. Kate, do you think government departments are, are aware that they need to respond to you? And uh... I, I think it, to be fair to government departments, we are a new organisation to them as well and the relationships are certainly developing with them as we begin to raise issues with them. We were certainly very pleased with the response that we got from the Department for Health and Social Care on the EHIC issue. Um, it's interesting that you were talking about sort of how we might get things done and what are, you know, how we can sort of push for some of these things to change. And I think some of those sort of softer relationship and influencing type conversations are going to be very powerful in terms of the way that we work. Um, we certainly haven't haven't had any resistance to being able to have those conversations. One of the challenges that I think we have is that if people do raise issues with us and if we begin to achieve this early resolution through conversation and through influence, it might be less visible mm -hmm. than it might otherwise be. And that's why we were keen to sort of publish the outcome today as the first of those early resolutions, because it helps to provide that feedback then to complainants as well that the information they provide us with, you know, we are picking it up and we are doing things with it. So certainly that soft influencing is very much part of the toolkit that we've got to try and um, seek resolution to the issues that are raised. Okay, so Rhys, in the event that government departments aren't quite so cooperative when you, or public bodies aren't quite so cooperative when you uh, raise issues with them, what, what are your powers? What can you actually do uh, 
know, when you don't just reach an agreed resolution as you appear to have done with the Department of Health and Social Care. Thank you, Jill. We, we do have legal powers and I, and I think I will come on to those in a second, but I think I'll just follow up uh, briefly uh, initially uh, on Kate's point just now around um, those other tools that we do have in terms of soft influence and I think obviously in terms of ensuring that the best possible uh, outcome for the citizen then time is, is of the essence and I think where we can uh, reach a mutually agreed uh, agreement with the individual uh, with the individual department then that is to be pursued and I think as, as, as a follow-on from that is, is our powers of inquiry and, and that that falls short of our powers to, to to take any public body to to court. And I think it is important to stress that you know our powers of inquiry are there to to explore with the public authorities and to explore with various citizens that have been affected uh, what the issues are. And at the and at the end of of any inquiry that the that the IMA does carry out, then uh, the IMA will set out a number of conclusions. Uh, which may well include a conclusion that there is a breach of the withdrawal agreement or the EEA after separation agreement. And in that situation, the IMA is able to make recommendations. And in relation to those recommendations, the, the public authority concerned will have three months to, to respond to the recommendation to set out if they propose to do anything in, in response and to set out their reasoning. So as a part of the IMA's role, we will obviously be monitoring, monitoring quite closely what the public authority's response will be and to assess to what extent do we believe that their response therefore addresses any issues or breaches that, that, that we identify. And then in terms of the legal powers that, that, that could then be relevant in that scenario where a public authority fails to act on our recommendations, then we do have the power to take legal action against the public authority where we consider it is uh, appropriate to do so for the promotion of the effective implementation of the withdrawal agreement or EEA after separation agreement. And uh, at that point, we would we would look to take, take legal action uh, to ensure enforcement. And Ashley mentioned that you were just flexing your legal muscles for the first time. So where have you found the need to do that? What's the case? Yeah, I think um, so, so, so our powers in, in terms of our legal powers, we have the power to take legal action. So that could be uh, as a result of a, an inquiry or could be uh, some uh, where there has not been an inquiry. Um, but we also have the power to intervene in existing legal proceedings. And we early on in our operations or at the turn of the year, we became aware of a particular case that was going through the courts in England and Wales. Uh, and uh, just before Christmas, I believe it was, there was a judgment from the Court of Appeal, which concerned legislation which determines eligibility for universal credit. And that is the case of Rotilla and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Uh, we uh, took a look at that case and we, we identified the, the issues that were uh, being uh, put to the court and uh, in the appeal to the Supreme Court we decided that it would be uh, in the interest of the IMA to intervene in that case because that case deals with a, a fundamental question about the scope of the, the right under EU law uh, for uh, individuals not to be discriminated on the grounds of nationality. And as we know that that right, uh, which is found in Article 18 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the EU, that is uh, in part imported into or fully imported into Article 12 
of the withdrawal agreement and Article 11 of the EEA after separation agreement. So, so what the court says on the meaning of Article uh, 18 of the TFEU will be very, very important to what Article 12 of the withdrawal agreement. So, so we feel it was it was helpful for the IMA to to intervene in that action to ensure that the court court is fully aware of all the implications of the, the judgment as it will have a lasting effect beyond the fact that EU law ceases to apply in the UK uh, on 31st December because the, the relevant principles will still apply via the withdrawal agreement. Okay, very interesting. Now I've got a very detailed question uh, from Humphrey, which is the top ranked question. So do vote up questions that you want because it's much easier to select out. I'm going to go to questions now. He's worried, and I think this is quite a general, quite an interesting issue about um, Swiss German granted settled status. Um, they're a bit worried about actually, you know, you can spend five years outside the UK without losing their settled status, they think, but they don't know quite how it counts. They've just moved recently to Germany, don't know whether that's when the uh, five years starts or whether every time they come back to the UK they get a reset on that five years. Are we clear enough to people? It must affect quite a lot of people who got settled status but then maybe went abroad back to their home country for a longer period because of Covid or whatever about are they at risk of losing settled status? Reese, can you give us a very quick potted version to what exactly the rules are but also do you think the Home Office is making this clear enough to people because that seems a more systemic issue. Yeah, thank you, Jill. I, I think um, th that is a good illustration of uh, the complexity of, of, of the rights that are available. I think uh, evidently um, we have talked already about the difficulties that individuals are having in uh, accessing the new settlement scheme, for example, and it's, it's, it's important to, to ensure that that we be, we are fully aware where people are having difficulties, not just in relation to the EU settlement scheme, but across the board. So, so I think that, that there is a challenge for public authorities to ensure that the, the rights uh, are well known. And in fact, there is a particular provision in the withdrawal agreement and the EA after separation agreement, which specifically deals with the public, uh, publicizing of rights so that people are fully aware of, of their rights. So that is something that is of interest to us. As to absences, um, obviously uh, I, I would need to know the, the specific details uh, without giving, and I wouldn't want to um, give any legal advice that anybody would be able to uh, rely on here. But in, in, in general terms, I think I think the key thing on absences to be aware of, and I think this is perhaps more important for those with uh, pre-settled status as, a, as opposed to those with settled status, that there, there are rules around absences which will impact on subsequent applications for settled status. So um, I think if, if I was to broadly summarise, if your absences outside of the UK, whilst you have pre-settled mm. status, are less than six months per year, then, then that should not affect your, your application for mm. settled status. However, once you go beyond six months in any 12-month period, then that's where people need to be uh, mindful of how that may impact on your subsequent application for settled status. So if you are outside the UK for over six months, then you will need to, uh, th there will need to have been an important reason uh, for that absence. Uh, and, and I think that there is some guidance in the legislation, so that could be for illness or pregnancy uh, uh, or national service. Um, 
But if you then go beyond the 12 months, if your absence outside the UK is over 12 months whilst you only have three second status, then unfortunately what that means for individuals is that they will be uh, they will not be able to uh, enjoy uh, moving to second status. So I think that is an extremely important uh, point for people to note, especially I think at the moment all the focus is on um, uh, applications uh, in before 30th of June. But I think as as we move as as we move beyond that deadline, then the key focus will then be perhaps on people who then subsequently apply to move from pre-settled status to settled status. So it's, so it's a very important point to to make to individuals. Okay, we've got lots of people in the questions worried about the deadline and the what happens to people who maybe for good reasons, maybe for less good reasons fail to get their application in the post oh, online in time for the deadline. Um, don't know quite who, which of you wants to ask this, but are you confident that the Home Office, I think, has put out some guidance on what it will regard as a reasonable excuse? Um, but are you confident that we have the systems in place to avoid things? Because one of the things about this is even if this is the world's most successful ever voluntary registration scheme, there could still, just because the sheer numbers involved, be a large number of people who find themselves uh, in limbo. Uh, what happens to them? Kate, you were volunteering to go first on this. Yeah, I'm quite happy for Pam to come in after me as well, <laughs> if she wishes. Um, I think what's important is the Home Office has published guidance on how it will deal with late applications. But one of the challenges that we've made back to the Home Office is they're not particularly easy to find. Um, they are quite extensive and they are written largely for caseworkers as caseworker guidance. And we think it's important that similar guidance or something is available which is easily understood by those outside as well. And I think for me, and this goes back to the heart of the how do you build trust question, for me, the way in which public bodies build trust is about how they respond to difficulties and how they respond to the cases that come through their door, which might be sort of slightly outside the norm or maybe slightly outside the process. And it's going to be really important that in dealing with these cases, these late applications, which for a whole variety of reasons must may come through, that the Home Office seem to be reasonable in the way that it deals with them. And an important part of that is being clear and upfront and publishing something readily sort of discoverable and intelligible on how those cases will be handled, simply so people know what is likely to happen. But I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Pam. I'm happy to hand over the mic if you do. Pam. Only to say, no, I don't. I think you've captured it um, very well, Kate, in terms of our current position. We are in current talks with the Home Office on this issue. OK, and if people find themselves in that position, uh, should they come to you? Is there anything they can you can do or will they have to just be appealing? Um, I know one of my lawyer colleagues suggested that in I think in some other countries, if you fail to meet the deadline, you'll get a fine, but they'll still grant you status. Whereas I think some of the sense from the Home Office was if you miss the deadline without a reasonable excuse, as they see it, you basically are just denied status. Uh, and somebody was suggesting that was raised human rights issues of proportionality. Is that your view? Don't know if anyone wants to come in on that. Was that a view the IMA might end up taking? 
Um, again, I'll, I'll allow my colleagues to come in after if they wish, but I'm, for me, I think the most important thing is that we're having this conversation now. Nobody wants to be in the position of coming in after the deadline and having to deal with whatever the consequences of that may be. It is really important that people take any steps that they possibly can to make sure they do get the application in. Conversations like this are important. Conversations, uh, the promotion that's going on outside in the media is important. It's really important that people do for their, for their own benefit that they do get that application in as soon as they possibly can. Um, I don't know if anybody would like to add anything to that. I, I'm happy to come in just briefly on that point, if I may. Uh, I think evidently the UK government have decided in implementing uh, the withdrawal agreement to uh, go with their constitutive scheme. Um, and evidently what that means is the, the setting away particular deadline which has to be met for uh, individuals to enjoy those rights. In relation to the experience of UK citizens in EU member states, uh, evidently each member state is free to choose its own uh, way of implementing the withdrawal agreement and some have chosen to implement a declaratory scheme where individuals are to declare to have such rights and that there is no such cutoff point for applications to be made. Um, I think that the question around human rights is evidently an interesting one. Uh, I think um, strictly speaking that could uh, stray beyond the, the, the defined remit of the IMA because what we are focused on is compliance with the withdrawal agreement and evidently the withdrawal agreement does provide for a constitutive uh, scheme. Uh, having said that though, we, we would always want to monitor quite closely how the UK implements its, its obligations and whether or not, whether that is in relation to the late application process or whether that is in relation to the, the, the how the deadline or how the status of individuals post the deadline uh, operates, then we will simply closely monitor the matters and uh, see or try and identify if there are any problems. And we've got a couple of questions about about sort of um, particular groups that uh, um, you might not feel covered. Um, one of people who are have settled status but haven't acquired it through the uh, as a beneficiary of the withdrawal agreement. I'm not quite sure who they are, but uh, maybe that's one for Reese about uh, about whether that's a problem. Another about whether the IMA sees a role with Irish citizens who obviously are part of the common travel area have totally different rights to the EU 26 and uh, other EFTA states in the UK. But does the IMA have any role on trying to persuade the UK on anything to do with voting rights for losing representation in the European Parliament elections? And uh, and another question about EU citizens who've also become British citizens, so they've got British nationality. Uh, I always remember a piece of advice from uh, from a colleague, which was that actually, in some ways, rights were better. If you avoided taking out British citizenship, uh, the rights in the withdrawal agreement were better for EU citizens, particularly on things like family reunification. Um, do once you've got British citizenship, basically, am I no longer an EU citizen for withdrawal agreement slash IMA purposes? So a bit of a mix of questions, but, uh, but what about these sort of special niche groups? Kate, because you're stepping up to the plate there. 
No, I wasn't. I was looking in a very pointed way at Reese. I think <laughs> Reece. we possibly can't tell since we're in a virtual environment. <laughs> Reese, thank, thank you, Kate. Oh, sorry, I, I, uh, no worries. By your chief executive. <laughs> no, that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, a lot of interesting questions, and I think so. So the variety of questions uh, is a. Um, is a, is a reflection of um, the, the, the different kind of circumstances the withdrawal agreement throws up, I guess. Um, and there's quite a few questions there, but uh, dealing with the last one first in relation to the status of individuals who uh, may have acquired British citizenship. I think as to their uh, rights around family reunification, then what the withdrawal agreement does provide is uh, for rights for EU citizens to be joined by their family members. So there is a, a particular right which is uh, in the withdrawal agreements around um, family members. Um, and I think that is an important uh, aspect of the withdrawal agreement to remember that not only will we be dealing with issues faced by EU and EA after citizens, but also their family members who also derive rights from uh, under those agreements. Um, as to the uh, the benefits or not of acquiring British citizenship, then um, I am I think the position is that yes, um, the, the the rules around uh, family reunification. So so in terms of the rights and the withdrawal agreements can be seen as more generous. As to uh, the position, I think it depends on how you've acquired British citizenship. Uh, there are differences. So to what extent have you exercised your free movement rights in advance of that? So, so it would de depend on the circumstances and there are there is various case law which deals with various circumstances. Um, and then the other questions, I think uh, one of the other questions uh, concerned the rights of Irish citizens uh, who have to be uh, residing in or have, uh, who are living in Northern Ireland. Uh, now, evidently the, the relationship between the UK and Ireland, uh, the withdrawal agreement is relevant. Uh, Evidently, however, also relevance is the common travel uh, area agreement. So it's 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 a, the rights of Irish citizens um, need to be borne in mind uh, with that in uh, or need to be considered with that with that in mind. I can't remember exactly. I'm trying to find the, the relevant question. I think is it the one from Seamus? Uh, yes, yeah, Seamus was worried about that. You can reply directly to Seamus because it might be a bit of a so evidently, I think you know, the, the answer is then uh, we are uh, interested in any issues faced by Irish citizens who are in the UK who feel that the withdrawal agreement rights are being breached. To what extent do we have a role in engaging with, say, for example, the Irish government in securing political and democratic rights for EU citizens? Then that would seem to me to extend beyond the role of the IMA because our role is solely on monitoring the implementation application of the withdrawal agreement and EAF separation agreement by UK public bodies. So our remit would not extend to uh, monitoring, uh, say for example, a Irish public authority, whether that is central government or whether that is a regional government. Okay, and voting rights aren't protected in the withdrawal agreement, are they? Uh, no, no, they're not. So those may be subject to separate bilateral agreements if the UK does those with individual member states. Um, we've got a question about uh, about sort of, you know, making your material available in languages other than English. And I think there's a more general question, I think, about uh, some of the sort of marginalised groups who may have required on quite a lot of face to face support uh, to help them apply, which obviously has been more difficult during the pandemic. 
Um, what are you doing to reach the people who might not be sort of digital natives, very good, at maybe not even particularly literate, who might find it hard to cope? Uh, how are you making your stuff readily available? Kate? Okay. I sort of deal first with the language issue, maybe before we come into that. I mean, it's not our policy to translate into the vast array of languages that we could potentially translate into, partly because obviously the, the area in which we're working is the UK and it's within Gibraltar. So um, to that extent, we would hope that language itself would not be as much of a barrier as it might be elsewhere. In, in terms of communicating with others, I think it's also a nature of us being a sort of relatively small organisation with a very large remit that we are keen to work as closely as we can with those other bodies who are supporting maybe the more vulnerable and the more marginalised groups mm. to make sure that whatever support that we can get is they are aware of and they are able to pass on and they are able to support individuals who might want to make their circumstances known to us and might struggle to do so on their own. Mm. I mean the one step that we have been taken particularly with the early documents and the large reports is the use of easy read formats for some of those reports because certainly to be producing, if you look at the operational guidance that we've published, um, whilst we've tried to shorten it, nonetheless, it is still very long, but to try and translate it into easy read, our hope is that that will make at least the principles of it as accessible to as many people as possible so that they can understand who we are and what we're for. But we do recognise that that is a challenge and that was why we are keen to work with those organisations and bodies and parties that are providing that sort of support on an ongoing basis. Okay, great. Um, a lot of concern, I think, about the translation from settled status into pre-settled status. Anonymous has been asked, basically, um, you know, I've got pre-settled status, only reached five-year mark in September. Will there be an equivalent of a settled status to apply for? Uh, to which I think the answer is, Yes, uh, but I'm slightly surprised Anonymous doesn't know that. Um, so I'm a bit worried about that. Pam, um, what are you doing? Do you think the government's got adequate plans in place to cope with people who are having to move from settled to pre, from pre-settled to settled status? And is there a, is the Home Office going to contact them and say, hey, you can now upgrade? or even automatically upgrade them if they're still in the UK or what what happens they have to take the initiative because clearly anonymous at least doesn't doesn't know yet what he, he she it is supposed to do yes um thank you that's that's another issue we are actively talking to the home office about um uh, their their communications and how they engage but yes the individual does need to apply for settled status at the end of their five years um at the end of the pre-settled period and that is really really important that people know that as i say it's something we're talking to the home office about and we are um actively engaging with them and looking at their communication. So um, that's an issue we can pick up with them. OK, so Anonymous, um, do let Pam know if you still think it's very hard to find information, because I think that's a sort of interesting, interesting area. And the conversion from pre-settled to settled status, I think, is going to be quite an important thing. Um, Ashley, yes. we've been asked whether whether you have equivalent bodies across the EU and whether there's any sort of liaison between a sort of network of um, of IMAs, if you like, with your equivalents. Um, 
I'm not sure there is really, is there, even though UK citizens' rights are obviously agreed by the withdrawal agreement as well, those who've moved to EU countries? Well, no, our equivalent body in the European Union is in fact the European Commission, uh, because the rights of British citizens uh, in each of the EU 27, it will be up to the member state to ensure that those are upheld. Um, now, clearly, if a member state doesn't uphold those rights, it would then be up to the European Commission to take enforcement proceedings. Uh, and my experience of working in the EU is that enforcement proceedings don't, uh, or infringement proceedings as they're called, they don't happen very often and they're very slow indeed. So um, the, the short answer to your question is no, we don't really have an equivalent independent body in Europe. It is the Commission that monitors the actions of the member states. Okay. I wonder if I could just yeah. add to that, Jill. Yeah. Um, and of course, the equivalent is the EEA and EFTA Surveillance Authority. And just to say that we are we are in touch with both the European Commission and the EFTA Surveillance Authority on on these matters as well. And I just wonder what other issues we're hitting, Kate, since we're with you. Um, what other issues are on your radar screen? You know, you say you're receiving complaints from people. Um, so where do you think there may be some of these systemic issues emerging? Somebody suggested social security coordination might be an area of risk. Other areas emerging alongside the physical identity one? Um, we have, of course, responsibilities that cut across all of the rights that are set out in the withdrawal agreement, whether that's the social security aspect, the mutual recognition of professional qualifications, whether that is general equal treatment. Mm. Um, so all of those that were covered in the survey. And I think it's probably fair to say, I mean, Pam will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've had at least one complaint on all aspects of those. Now, obviously a small number of complaints on a particular issue doesn't necessarily indicate a systemic issue, but um, what we've been really, really pleased with and really grateful for, I think, is the very positive engagement that we've had from so many other bodies who are involved in directly supporting EU citizens so that we can get the broader intelligence from them and maybe get examples of the other cases that are coming through. Certainly, we've been invited to um, speak to a number of groups. We attend the monitoring group of the EU delegation um, and we are, we speak to the three million, we speak to Settle, etc. So we are getting a lot of intelligence through from other parties. Mm. And I, I wouldn't, I don't think at this stage, because so much focus is on the settlement scheme, so much focus is on settle, pre-settle mm. status and the way in which it guarantees that rights. I don't think there are a significant number of additional potential systemic issues at the moment, but we are having individual and sort of small numbers of complaints coming through on other subjects that hopefully if we continue through sort of the regular conversations with public bodies, most of which will hopefully be resolved through the early resolution approach, because it's just about making sure that those early signals are brought to bodies' attention. Now, one of the things that's very notable about the UK um, immigration system is the extent to which normally we rely on employers and landlords to enforce by asking people to prove their rights. Um, has the government done enough to give guidance to employers and landlords what they're supposed to do with people where they may not really know whether they've got settled status? Do they suddenly have to ask everybody who they think has a slightly European sounding surname or maybe 
slightly unusual accent on the 1st of July, whether they actually have got settled status or not, uh, or pre-settled status and therefore maintain their right to work or right to rent. How does that work? Um, whether they've done enough, I mean, I think we're talking about communicating with a very diverse um, diverse range of bodies, many of which um, may well be sole traders. We are at the moment preparing our own materials to share with local authorities because it's obviously in these in these local environments that you can get some of the more detailed messages across. So um, whether they've done enough, certainly one of the issues that we're interested in is the extent to which this communication is taking place. We are keen to support it ourselves. We are not at the moment having a significant number of complaints coming through in this area. Although I'm looking to see if Pam will nod because I believe we have had one or two that have come through in relation to this. So it's certainly something that we'll be watching. And what about this point that we've seen this week, Christian, from Christian, Christina Gallardo from Politico, about the people who've, um, you know, being detained at the border and deported. Um, Slightly surprised that since you don't yet have to answer the question, do you have settled status if you want to work here, that people seem to be being held at the border and deported because they're coming to work or look for work here. And a related issue is if my application is in the post, how do I prove to an employer that I actually have the right to work? Because you've said that even if my application is, uh, is not finally dealt with, I still rate, retain my free movement rights there. Pam, you know, how, you know, were you surprised by these stories about EU citizens being put in detention and returned or is that just what we should expect? Because actually that's what we do to third country nationals and they're third country nationals after all. So yes, we are aware of this issue. It's been brought to our attention earlier this week. Um, as you say, we've seen the press reports and we've had other conversations um, about this issue. We have raised it already with the Home Office this week. Um, as we've said a few times, we're in regular contact with them on, on, on issues affecting all EU citizens' rights. Um, our remit, of course, is um, covering those citizens that um, are able to enjoy the rights from the withdrawal agreement. Um, we are trying to understand from the Home Office what's happening. And yes, of course, we're concerned. This doesn't sound, um, you know, this is not, this is not um, a good position to be in, but we, we're in discussions with the Home Office. We would in, encourage anybody who's affected by this, of course, to raise it with their relevant consulate and to consider making a complaint directly to the public body concerned. We, um, our portal is open for complaints as well, so of course individuals can raise it with us, but we would need to look at those complaints as they came in to assess whether or not they're in scope of the IMA. Okay, that's, I think, uh, clear. I just want to go to two other groups who might find it difficult to have got uh, settled status in time. Question about the rights of care leavers or people, children in care, and also uh, EU, EEA citizens who are currently in prison, uh, who might not find it so easy to be making the necessary applications. Um, are you satisfied that 
they're being adequately supported and the system's adequately flexible to recognise their particular circumstances? Who wants to take that one? Kate? I mean, it's interesting in both of those cases. So um, I was at a regional coordination group for those that were supporting settlement scheme monitoring. And what was interesting there was that each of the local authorities concerned was going through in terms of the number of children they had in care within their area and making sure that they were tracking to ensure that all of those children were going through the processes that they need to go through. And this is why we're so keen to be communicating out with local authorities just to make sure that this is happening on a consistent basis across the board. So my hope would be that that, that, um, that is something that would have seen wherever I got, wherever I went, because I know these monitoring groups exist in other places too. Um, so my hope is yes. Um, likewise, in, in terms of other groups, such as potentially offenders that might have difficulty getting through it, those that may be um, in custody or, or whatever, um, we need to see what how the guidance on what constitutes a reasonable excuse I think pans out if there are any in those particular circumstances you haven't been haven't been able to act to exercise their rights um, find themselves having to go through that process somewhat afterwards but again this is um, I, I'm aware that there are a lot of bodies out there who are tasked with and supported to support other individuals who are in these vulnerable groups to make sure they do put their applications forward and I think the real the real test will be in terms of what happens when we come to testing the reasonable excuse guidance after the 30th. Ashley last question to you because we're coming up against the deadline of millions of questions it's very hard to get through them all. Um, do you expect to be a regular uh, performer in front of select committees. Do you think select committees are going to be a sort of useful route to influence for the IMA? Will have you had interest from, say, health and social care select committee, the home affairs select committee, or work and pensions and things in the work of the IMA? Or are you uh, are they sort of thinking? Well, that's actually a body that's sponsored by the Ministry of Justice, so. Uh, it's not really in our bailiwick. Well, I was subject to a confirmation hearing uh, by the Justice Affairs Select Committee, uh, and that was useful because several MPs raised immediately the issue of no physical proof of settled mm. status. So it's clear that that's something that MPs are alert to. Uh, I've had meetings uh, with more than one MP since my appointment in which that issue and others have been raised. I think it's likely to be the Justice Affairs Select Committee with whom we have the closest relationship because they're our sponsoring government body. But clearly, if other departments uh, wanted us to give evidence, we'd, we'd be available to do that. OK, so that's the sort of message out to uh, all the clerks of select committees who are watching that uh, the IMA is producing sort of useful evidence. So I'm going to wind up the session there because we've been through our hour. Apologies to everybody. I don't think we've ever had quite so many questions in a session before. I hope you've covered the big themes there, but you all know now more about the Independent Monitoring Authority, hopefully. Uh, lots of information on the website. Google Translate available if you need it uh, converted into a different language, uh, which I think has now got uh, to be quite good. Do you think about applying to the EU Citizens Panel? OK, are EEA citizens eligible for your citizens panel as well? It's not just EU citizens. Yeah, so do apply if you're, I think I'm getting a thumbs up there. 
do apply and do spread the word and do if you have an issue we hope that nobody has any problems at all with the implementation of the citizens rights agreements that would be the best case scenario that the IMA proved itself to be a redundant body uh, clearly though early signs are that there are some issues it's on the case but uh, it does depend on intelligence from everybody out there who is experiencing any problems so you know where to get in touch with them you now hopefully know where they are and if you uh, watched uh, this but you think your friends would be interested please tell them about it too thank you very much to our panelists and thank you all very much for watching <laughs>